Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said many times, usually on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can be spending our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can be hard to tell what to play next. Uh, as the kids say, it can lead to a serious case of fear of missing out. Now, normally, this would be the part where I start talking about the awesome guests that I have on this week's show. Um, But this week, we're going to do something a little different. Um, I, for those who've not been following me on Facebook, I have been doing a lot of traveling the last couple of weeks. Uh, My grandmother turned 106, and so I flew back to the United States for her birthday. And I've been traveling from city to city, place to place, to see friends and family uh, and attend quite a few family reunions, which has been absolutely fantastic. Now, while I've been traveling, uh, there's... I haven't been able to, of course, travel with my full podcasting rig. Uh, I know the last time I was back in the States, I was able to jury-rig a sound system together to uh, have our good friend Seamus and Casey on, uh, but this time that was just not possible. I did, however, bring a microphone um, as I was invited on uh, Friends of the Show, The Long Box Crusade. I was invited on one of their shows, uh, Saturday Matinee Theater, uh, and talked about Flash Gordon. I'll get to that in a little bit. But I thought, um, given that when traveling, you have a lot of downtime, a lot of time sitting in airports, a lot of time sitting in the back of cars watching the train go by, and a lot of laying up at night with ridiculous jet lag, it occurred to me that uh, there are just a lot of things that I'd like to probably talk about. Now, I do express my opinion on this show, and I do do it fairly often. However, it is often through the lens of a visiting guest. So this week, um, I'm going to do something a little different. Rather than hang up the gone fishing sign while I'm traveling, I thought I might do a solo episode. Now, (laughs) to be honest, the idea of this is terrifying. Um, I am, uh, by nature, the straight man on this show uh, when I had a radio show way back when. Um, I had more interesting people on and I would (laughs) sort of guide them through conversations or at least try to. Uh, And that's kind of how I do the podcast. Um, I love to, just to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk shop, uh, I I like to have other people on um, as I don't really like talking by myself for this long. Um, But today, I hope you will bear with me as I try this um, after many, many years of podcasting, uh, the first solo cast uh, I've ever done. Anyway. Let's move on. Uh, So as I said, it's easy to be reflective when traveling um, as long a period and as distance as I have been. Um, And so I thought I would talk about a few of the things that I've experienced, a few of the things I've been thinking about, and uh, just a few industry events that I've found really interesting of late. Uh, Now, of course, this is just me. Um, So in a way, this is an editorial. Uh, I, I don't know how controversial it'll be. Um, But as always, if you have any comments or sneers, jeers, abuses, as one of my teachers growing up would say, I hope that you will contact the Cast Dice Facebook page uh, and message me there. Um, That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And uh, yeah, just send us your thoughts. Now, I talking with the Longbox Crusade guys last night did get me thinking. It is... This may be a good opportunity to just talk about a few 
housekeeping issues that uh, sometimes I neglect to talk about at the end of episodes, uh, be it timing-wise or I just hate to ask people. But um, I've had a few people ask of late again if I have a Patreon page. Uh, I do not. Uh, I look at podcasting as a as a personal hobby. I, it's something I enjoy. It's something I love doing. Um, and I feel funny asking other people to pay for my hobby. Uh, that said, as always, um, if people have comments or suggestions for shows, I mean, we've had a lot of, uh, recommendations recently come through the Facebook page and I've tried to get as many of those, uh, ideas into the show as possible. Uh, some of those I will be talking about today cause they don't always line up with particular guests. Um, as such though, I don't look podcasting doesn't cost you, the listener, very much money. Um, if any, if anything, it just costs time. And as someone who makes these uh, podcasts, I realize that time is precious. And the fact that you're spending the time listening to this, look, I appreciate it. Um, thank you very much uh, if you are listening today. I know I've said that on the end of quite a few podcasts, but I don't want you as the listener to ever feel as though I take you for take, take you for granted, I guess. Now, um... I will implore you today for one thing, though. Um, if you enjoy the show, and um, I I know that a few of you do because you send very nice feedback. Uh, if you do, I would greatly appreciate if you could take the time uh, to go to iTunes, um, if you are using that as a vehicle to download this podcast, and if you could leave a review, um, you know, five-star reviews would be the best, um, but, you know, whatever you feel like giving would be great. Um, extra reviews, especially those with words, uh, go a long way in improving the traffic um, and the way the algorithm algorithms work within iTunes to ensure that um, more people find this show and other people can listen. Anyway, um, if you would not mind, that would be fantastic. Now, one of the things, as I said before, that is has been happening quite a bit in this particular trip has been family reunions. Now, in the last couple of episodes, uh, I have mentioned a couple of times just how terrible I think uh, a board game Monopoly is. Um, and it has got me think a lot about mass-produced board games. Um, I know we're in a bit of a board game renaissance, or at least we were five to ten years ago, and tons of games like Ticket to Ride, um, I, I just... Small World, a lot of these games, uh, Carcassonne, um, Settlers of Catan, I mean, big famous games that have been around for a while really sort of became in vogue. And even quote unquote normies who don't play games or read comic books or even are really into um, sort of geeking gaming culture at all, were playing board games with a fair bit of regularity and they still are. Um, And that's great. But, uh, you know, when you go to family gatherings... um, Sometimes games that, as a gamer, sort of make me cringe, i.e. Monopoly, get pulled out uh, to be enjoyed. Now, I do have to say, it it was really cool, though, uh, on this particular trip, because um, my brother-in-law does love a good competitive game of any kind, be it miniature golf or really anything. Uh, And my dad, of course, and I used to play board games growing up. And uh, so we pulled out a game called Sorry. And um, yeah, Sorry's fun. It was a good time. Um, There's just the suitable amount of screw you to the other opponents that keep it interesting. Uh, But even then, it's sort of a little random with the die rolling and, uh, sorry, with the cards and the way that the mechanics of the game work. 
it doesn't always involve a whole lot of strategy. But that got my father and I talking about a game that we played growing up. Uh, my dad and I, you know, when we lived in Japan, um, were looking for things that we could do uh, that were relatively inexpensive. We didn't have very much money back then. Um, not that we're rolling in it now, but uh, we, my dad taught on military bases. And so we were able to get a cheap copy of Monopoly. Now, as I've said many times, it is not my favorite game. Um, but what we did do, or what my father did, was he pulled out a ruler and he pulled out a pen and he drew a game that he played with his dad uh, on the back. Uh, he created a board for a game called Parcheesi. Um, now, Parcheesi is very similar to Sorry if you've ever played it. Um, it, it involves having to go around uh, the board with your pieces. Uh, everyone has a safe starting point and then as pieces sort of drip out, you need to get them around the board uh, and then back up into a safe zone into your own sort of quote-unquote heaven where they finish. And the first person to have all four of their pieces to the end wins. Um, and if you land on someone else, they get knocked back to where they start from. Um, but unlike Sorry, there are some safe zones spread around the board. Um, but what's really interesting is the way the dice work in this game. And because uh, it's not just you're rolling... 2d6 uh, every time your your pieces move and you can divide the rolls between multiple pieces you can add them together to move individual pieces or if you roll doubles uh, you get four sets of numbers um, both the number on top and the number of the bottom of the dice which always add up to seven so if you roll for example two twos you get two twos and two fives now that means you can move up to 14 you know, spots with one model, or if you have four pieces out on the board, you could move one, two, another one, two, another one, five, another one, five. And it really does make for interesting gameplay. What what I found really missing from Sorry and other games that are sometimes, you know, mass produced and sold by Parker Brothers or whatever else is a real sense of tactics. And when I sat down with my father and my brother-in-law, we started playing, and at first it's, you know, hopping around, laughing. But very quickly, I think having to do with my brother-in-law's uh, competitive nature, man, the tactics came out. And, you you know, started talking about the tactics of, ooh, when do you hold a piece back on a safe spot and block other people? Because when somebody's in a space spot, no one can get past you. Um, and it just, it was just a really fun, enjoyable experience. And, you know, occasionally there was some uh, some screw you moments that, you know, led to conversations across the board. And I had to explain to my brother-in-law the idea of feel badsies in gaming, uh, which I'm sure many of you will have heard on this podcast before. But yeah, it just reminded me that though um, I guess sometimes I have a disdain for mass-produced games, um, I don't know if Parcheesi counts but there's real potential out there, and it was just it's just a lot of fun to the point where we ended up having a little party tournament, so to speak, over the the span of one family reunion and uh yeah, I think uh we've probably played that game to death for at least the next ten years. But as I live thousands of miles from my family, being back around them. Uh, of course, stirs up feelings of nostalgia, playing that game absolutely did. And you guys know how much I enjoy nostalgia. In fact, I think I've leaned into the extra nostalgic uh, nature of this trip by bringing a game along uh, to revisit and to play and figure out. Uh, 
kick the tires, so to speak, as I sometimes say. Put the boots on the ground and uh, get some gameplay in. Now, of course, that means a lot of solo play, but the game I'm talking about is a game that I absolutely adored as a kid. Um, and once I say a kid, I mean, I do mean a kid, but also as a teenager, because I played it forever. And of course, I'm talking about Battletech. Um, I have talked about Battletech a little bit recently, and I'm going to do a whole episode or two about it soon. Um, but I did want to share a few thoughts I've had about it because um, I recently got the reissued box, the full game and the beginner's box. Um, I think it's called Battletech, the Game of Armored Combat. And it is um, really astonishing how little the game has actually changed uh, since the 80s. Um, I have the original rulebook at my parents' house, which I've recently pulled out um, when I was home, and I pulled out the new rulebook that I got in the box game, and they are strikingly similar. Um, what I guess is the big difference is um, the quality of the maps has gone up considerably. Um, they've cleaned up the language of the rules quite a bit, and so it's it's there's nice acronyms in there to help you remember um, the order of turns and um, the, the the modifiers for shooting and for combat. Uh, but of course, one of the big things that's really changed, and I think is really drawing a lot of people back to the game, is that the new box sets uh, have new models in them. Now, Battletech, you know, was a game that when it originally came out had cardboard cutouts. Um, and then you could buy additional boxes. Um, they had, I think it was called the additional units box. And, um, or an, there was an updated one when the clans came later. And it was just a box. And it had a ton of additional cutouts for new mechs that had not appeared in the original box. Um, which was really cool. And I got that as a kid and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I played with those cutouts forever. I wore them out. Um, but eventually uh, gamers wanted models and there were some models back in the day and they were okay. Um, but as they sort of shifted over and they tried to mass produce the game's models and sort of encourage people to play with miniatures more, um, they came out with plastic models. And unfortunately, even back then, even back in the late 80s, they were woeful, I think is the word. Um, and I don't usually speak disparagingly of things on this podcast, but God, they were terrible. Um, they were out of proportion. The detail was soft. They had awful mold lines. Um, they were just, they, they reminded me more of uh, those plastic toy soldiers you play with as a kid that you would buy sort of in bulk. They were just not great quality. And around the same time, sort of Games Workshop was making its massive run um, with Rogue Trader um, and end of Rogue Trader, beginning of second edition. And man, the quality between the two companies was night and day. And I know at that point, I sort of put Battletech down, and I picked up GW, and I kind of didn't look back until recently, which is a little sad. But um, I know there was a legal dispute, quite a few legal disputes um, with Battletech over the years, and I'm sure we'll get about get to that on the next time we talk about it. But um, ownership of the game has changed dramatically uh, several times. Um, there's been lawsuits about uh, which mechs can be used where. And given all of that, again, I think it's astonishing that the game itself has, in essence, remained timeless. Uh, we are still playing variations of 
Battletech sort of version one. Um, now I know it was originally called Battle Droids and all of that, but at, at its essence, at its core, it is still the same game. Now, um, you used to balance forces by counting up tons, uh, tonnage of the mechs, be them light, medium, heavy, or assault. But these days, they've um, sort of gone with slightly finer variation on that by adding point values. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how those point values have been determined, but it, I think it does make for a fairer game. And so while I've been traveling, when I've been up with jet lag in the middle of the night, or when I've been on long haul flights, um, i brought a, a, a map section that fits on a small table and I printed out some map sheets and I brought some of my old uh, cardboard cutouts and I've been on planes and in hotel rooms uh, playing Battletech against myself. Um, and while that isn't giving me the full tactical feel of the game, not trying to you know outthink my opponent, um, I think it's mechanically given me a pretty good idea of how the game works. And I really went out of my way to see if I could sort of break the balance. Um, I played, you know, one-on-one -on -one game, uh, one mech versus one mech. I played two-on-two. -two, um, but those, of course, were similarly weighted um, slash point-valued mechs. And, uh, you know, I tried to mix it up a little bit by having some long-range versus some short-range. Um, and ultimately, I thought it balanced pretty well. Um, Seamus, as I said, good friend of the show, um, did, he and I were talking, and he wondered if... Uh, if you had a heavy mech, if you tried to balance that out against sort of an equal number of points of light mechs, would that make for a good game? Uh, and so I played that out as well. I took uh, one of my old school favorites, the Thunderbolt, uh, versus a Locust, a Stinger, and a Panther, and I put them all on the table and I played that out. And it was a nail-biter. Um, I think at the end... The Thunderbolt was down to, I mean, it's had one of its torsos and arms ripped off. It was literally down to one arm. It was sort of limping along, and it had a large laser on one arm. And in the end, the Panther had been destroyed. The Stinger had been uh, had an engine explosion, and so it sort of supernovaed on the board. And um, the Locust had no arms, damaged torsos and sort of limped away slightly faster than the Thunderbolt could catch it. Um, so, I mean, it was an incredibly cinematic game. It was a lot of fun. Um, the Thunderbolt was always sort of trying to turn and swat the lighter mechs. They were always trying to get behind it, but because there was three of them and then two of them, um, there was always that, which way do you point if you want to uh, try and get out of the line of sight? And so um, I think it was good for me to try and play that out because it definitely gave me a feel of... Um, how lighter mechs, or faster mechs, I should say, are much harder to hit, um, but how some of the heavier mechs are a lot more durable. Now, I did wonder, since the Thunderbolt was a heavier armored mech, if something that was slightly, um, I don't know, more prolific, like a Marauder or a Warhammer, which are slightly heavier but um, have slightly lighter armor, if they would have fared as well, given all the abuse the Thunderbolt took in that game. But the one thing with those mechs is they are significantly upgunned. Um, they have far more firepower. So I think they would have made shorter work of the light mechs. But by the same token, the light mechs would have been harder to hit because they were moving. And so some of that firepower would have been mitigated. And I think it still balances because um, they would be running around doing the same thing in the arcs. Um, and though the light mechs would have been taken out earlier they also 
would have had an easier job of getting through the armor to damage the uh, you know the internals on those other mechs. So yeah, I th- I think it, the game balances and it, it look. I think I've been playing it at really small levels, and I think it works well for that. It is a game, as I said, that has been going on since the 80s. And so it it plays like a game that is on a hex and is hex-based and came from the 80s, uh, even though it's been cleaned up, even though it's been prettied up. Um, it is not a fast game. Uh, one of the trends in gaming we've really been seeing is sort of a proliferation of fast, fun games. Kill Team, Gaslands. Uh, all, countless games that are short, sharp. You can get a couple games in in a night and, you know, go. Battletech is usually um, played, at least from what I understand of looking at the modern Battletech community, be- between sort of lances, that's four mechs on a side. Um, I get the feeling that if you played some lances, especially if you're including heavier mechs, you're going you're gonna to be there a while. And it might feel a little grindy um, trying to get through each other's armor and you know I'm sure there'll be some great tactics in there but I think the game might I don't want to say drag um, but I think you need to be careful in your setup to sort of make sure that it doesn't Uh, again I need to play more but I've really been enjoying revisiting that game as I say it gets me right in the feels reminds me of my childhood uh, in a good way because I spent a lot of my time traveling to and from school when I was a school kid in Japan. And that's where I really, I sort of loved Battletech the most. Um, And I just would spend countless hours reading those rule books, reading the source books, reading the novels. And that's, I mean, I think that's important to remember. I think people always talk about the rich uh, setting and the fluff the Games Workshop puts into its games. I mean, 40K has an incredibly deep history and broad world um, with countless you know races and iterations and you could talk about the history of individual characters in that universe and yes they did go back in time um, and sort of flesh out 30k um, the Horus Heresy era but 40 I mean the Warhammer 40k universe has sort of always been and yes I know they did advance the timeline with 8th edition but it's always sort of been the same moment in time um yes it's spread across a huge galaxy of planets um and other realities through the warp and all of this but to really think about um i mean to the battletech universe is scarily deep um and you get to know the characters really well if you start looking through source books reading novels and they sort of intertwine in and out of um, books and stories and narratives, um, you know, characters that are old favorites will pop up um, in history books um, of the of the of the, the battles that are being fought. Um, they'll make appearances in novels. Um, it's it's really self referential, but in a fun way that is you know having revisited and reread a lot of these on my travels this trip. Um, it's been really cool, uh, and I really in, I'm really enjoying it. And I think that depth of universe is pretty special, um, especially given. I mean, that's not something you can do overnight, and it's something that was built up over a huge number of years. Um, and just to revisit it is, you know. <laughs> A little daunting. Um, but, I mean, the only bit I'm reading is essentially around the 3025 to 3035 
succession war, fourth succession war, third succession war sort of era. Um, I'm not even getting into the clans or the pre-clans or, you know, the post-clans or the jihad or the, you know, the Star League before it all. I mean, it's, it's like 1,500 years of history, but it reads like actual history. Um, there are history books of Battletech history. Um, I'm holding one in my hand. The Fourth Succession War, Military Atlas, Volume 1, which just gives you the August to January uh, between two years. And it reads, it if you flip open, it's got diagrams of battlefields. It's got written up histories from sort of an over-the-top point of view. Um, sorry, top-down point of view. And it reads suspiciously like the Osprey history books that we often read for bolt action. Um, it in fact feels very historical and I don't think I appreciated as a kid, the sort of the effort that went into the sort of historical aspect of this game until I really started to play bolt action. If you look at, um, all of the source books and all the history books for Battletech, the classic ones, um, the ones that I've really enjoyed and still work in the game today. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, if I'm holding up the Kellhounds book, which is a mercenary unit in the game, um, it has a unit history from its inception to its quote-unquote modern day, even though the, the history has advanced since then. Uh, notable characters um, or personalities within the unit um, and their mechs that they pilot, but then the rest of the book is entirely made up of historical scenarios. It really does feel like a campaign book. Um, and you can recreate battles that you can read about in the history books um, that are presented in other places or in the fluff at the beginning of the book, which is super historical. I mean, it feels like a historical game, even though you're talking about, you know, a post, not post-apocalyptic, but a uh, declining technology um future that is often quite grim and you know we're talking thousands of years in the future and then all of a sudden you are creating you know historically quote-unquote accurate games to recreate battles that never existed i just think it's really interesting i think it may be showing part of its age from the 80s i think um they were trying to i don't know fit um, what people saw as gaming at the time. A lot of people were playing historical games and things like that. But uh, I think I think it's really interesting uh, to look at now. I think maybe as an older gamer, I, I just love it. Anyway, I, I think it's probably time to move on to the next subject. But watch this space. Uh, there will be more Battletech content to come. Now let's move on to something a little more contemporary. How about Star Wars Legion? Now recently there was the Worlds event. Um, so there was a series of tournaments that led up to one grand tournament, so to speak. Um, sort of the best of the best. Sort of the masters of the Star Wars Legion world. And uh, it was called Worlds. It took place in the United States. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a meeting of champions. People who played... Um, Star Wars Legion at a high quality or high caliber level. Um, now, I'm not saying that those people necessarily know the game top to bottom, in and out, better than anyone else, but they probably do have a lot more experience playing. They play it more often than perhaps the layman, like myself. Um, but there was some really interesting... I was listening to an, uh, an interview with uh, the winner of that event, and he was talking about a few things in the game, 
And it was pointed out in that interview that of the lists, um, so it was only sort of the best of the best of this particular event. So there was only eight people playing. Um, but of those eight people, uh, so there was something like 24 special slots, specialist slots in people's lists. I believe they said that 19 of them were taken up by sniper teams. Now, uh, I was not excited by that. Um, I I found that to be fairly um, damning of uh, things in the game that might need a little cleaning up. I think um, a lot of the the commentary that happens in Star Wars Legion podcasting slash discussions on message boards really, I think it, it comes down to something that may have been started in X-Wing um, where people talk about the efficiencies nonstop and it's how do you get the most out of your list? How do you squeak every point and make it work? How do you sort of, how do you win at all costs? Um, now, I'm not saying win at all costs as in a competitive kick your opponent's teeth in, but really trying to make the most of your list. I don't know if that, as someone who's trying to play Legion more, is something that really calls to me. And I think having spoken to a lot of people, I think at least the people I've spoken to, kind of agree. I kind of feel like uh, Han Solo when I say, never tell me the odds. Now, of course, that means I'm, I'm of course, I'm going to look at units and whether or not I think they're good or bad or if they work together when I'm building a list. But look, I don't need to have something tricked out to the nth degree to have a good time playing this game. Um, I've recently bought more 3D printed models through uh, Skullforge, which is um, Skullforge designs uh, through Shapeways. And I've gotten a lot of great models from them. I have the Bounty Hunters from Empire Strikes Back. So Boss, Dengar, Forlom, Zutkis, um, and of course, Bosk. Um, but you also have uh, Boba Fett. And, you know, some of these have rules in the game. Some of them don't. Uh, but I'm looking forward to sort of uh, using subbing them in, uh, perhaps using them as a scout team, Imperial scout team, with some upgrades to sort of mod them out and add some more character to, you know, fun narrative games. Um, I am not really interested in facing um, the same army over and over again. I don't want to face six stormtrooper units with three sniper teams and, you know, Boba Fett and one character. Uh, it just feels a little dry especially when you have so many interesting, cool units that exist for the game and such third-party support, uh, particularly in the 3D printed world, of models that you can take. Uh, I mean, I just... So the most recent stuff I picked up was an Inferno Squad, so the Imperial Special Forces units um, from the Battlefield games. Uh, I have Thrawn. I got Yoda. I've got a battle-damaged Vader. And... Um, Dr. Evan Zenz and Panda Baba. And I, I'm just so excited to put them on the board. And sure, a lot of those units, of course, don't have rules. Um, but, you know, a little bit of modding and a little bit of fun. And I think we're ready to go. Um, and I just think it's it's so exciting that these resources exist for us as a player to, to really put really cool, fun aspects of the Star Wars universe on the tabletop that perhaps <laughs> the game as it's written at the moment, doesn't really include. 
Um, I, I'm really excited by the end of the interview with the world's champion when he said that he is, he's already have, I guess he has a standing invitation to next year's event, which isn't going to be sort of an eight man world style masters event. Instead, it will be part of, I believe it's Adepticon and it will be a massive event that lots of people can enter. Um, and then we'll just el- they'll eliminate players over the days, and then at the end, um, there will be something like eight players on the last day. But um, it's far more inclusive, I think, for the community, even though they did a great job of streaming um, the event, the most recent Worlds. I think, I think it's better for the game to have a larger event where more people can actually attend and participate in. Um, I think it'll really help there. Anyway, um, he said because he already has a ticket to this event, he doesn't need to quote unquote qualify, um, that he was going to work on um, and work with quote unquote janky lists. Um, he mentioned one of those is, you know, experimenting with multiple Imperial tanks or, you know, taking some things that other people consider possibly not as efficient or not great um, and really trying to make those work in the game. And I think that's great. I mean, if you get some of those players who are playing the game at sort of the higher levels, who who do put the reps in, who do have a community presence, a lot of these guys play um, in an online league, uh, playing Legion online, people can spectate, people can watch. Um, I think the more people like that um, sort of embrace lesser used units um, and sort of make them work. Figure out ways to make some of these things, quote unquote, work in a in the quote unquote competitive world. You know, I think we'll see more synergies. I think um, I think we'll just see more variety on the table. And I think that will really help because I know that some of the people who play this game are you know, sometimes put off by the same sameness of uh, some people's lists. Um, I, I, I had a wonderful time playing in the Legion event recently in Melbourne, right before I left, um, with a good friend of the show, Drew, and we had an excellent time. Um, I had two games. Uh, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing particularly well. Um, my opponents definitely knew more than I did. Um, I won my first two games, I think out of, um, sort of the hotness of the dice, uh, but, uh, I definitely, you know, I've, I've referred to this on prior podcasts where I've, you know, you do well in the first couple of games and it's like sort of the reverse submarine and you sort of ascend beyond your quote unquote skill level. And, uh, by the time I got to my third game, I got soundly beaten by someone who knew the game and knew how to counter, um, my strategy, my tactics far better than I did. And I think at that point, my luck deserted me as well. Um, but I don't want to take away from the fact that Dion knew what he was doing and uh, absolutely sound me, soundly beat me. Uh, I definitely need to play more. And I think one of the places I'm going to be playing more is online. Now, um, I have mentioned in the past that uh, I will be starting streaming games. Now, some of you have pointed out, a few people asked recently, Whatever happened to that? Because I've been talking about it for quite a while. Uh, Well, a couple of things. One, um, I'm a city dweller. My wife and I live in a city in Melbourne's um, CBD. Uh, It is not a big place. And so finding a permanent um, setup or even something I could set up and strip down was always sort of a problem. Uh, But uh, one of the reasons why uh, another thing several people have messaged me recently is, 
asking me why I haven't been playing more games. Uh, well, my wife and I have been working on our house for the last month or two um, to get it ready because we are going to be uh, moving and we're moving to a suburb outside of Melbourne near where I teach. And we have a house that we're moving into where I will have a dedicated uh, gaming room, uh, which is something that I have not had in a very, very long time. And I'm looking forward to setting up a permanent podcasting slash game streaming rig that will be ready to go. And I'm, I definitely will not be streaming games as often as I podcast, but I would like to um, start streaming content. And I do have uh, a few Star Wars Legion armies, um, some excellent terrain. Uh, some of it was painted by the wonderful Muddy Funster. And so I'm looking forward to uh, getting the game on the table and kicking the tires and just having a great time, particularly with some of those third-party units and models that you just don't see anywhere else. Uh, I know there's some people posting their painting progress, but in the in online battle reports, you just don't tend to see them. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, you know, maybe if I'm really lucky, I can get the likes of Brian Cook to come down uh, from Sydney to play a game sometime. And because his stuff is so good looking. Now, while we're talking 3D printed models, um, we have talked with a few people about the technology of late and sort of the possibilities that it, it affords. I mean, anything you really want to creatively build, you, if you know someone who, or you yourself um, can, you know, digitally design something, you can make almost literally anything. Um, I, as you all know, I've been working on GI Joe 3d printed vehicles for quite a while now. Um, but you know, Star Wars Legion, the scale being slightly larger has really afforded the uh, opportunity for a lot of these character models to come out, um, as I've just listed a ton of them. Um, but recently there was an article in uh, Spiky Bits that an editorial discussing whether or not um, 3D printed models and armies were, I guess, a good thing. Um, there was a 40K event recently, I guess, where um, players, a uh, player won. And I guess it was the first time that it, a player won with a largely, if not entirely, 3D printed army. And people were losing their minds online that, you know, oh, how dare they? This is not a good thing. Um, I just think that that isn't forward thinking. Um, now, true, it, it is true that the person who showed up to this event showed up with unpainted models. But, you know, that was per rules of the event. And the models were neon green. And <clears throat> they were on cardboard bases. So, yes, I, I, I do understand that if you saw that across from a table, sorry, across from you on a table, that might be off-putting, uh, especially if that person then went on to win the event. But I don't know, the, the way that 40K is sort of chases the meta, the way that Games Workshop likes to create games that um, are inherently not balanced. Um, now I can hear people arguing with me in the background. I get it. I played 40K forever and I played at a very high level. But the way that that game inherently works, and I have argued vehemently against what I'm about to say, but Largely in retrospect, especially stepping off that carousel and looking back, it really is a game that's dependent on codex creep. And it's when you couple that with, you know, every army book that comes out is slightly more powerful than the ones before. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Yes, I know. But we're talking generally. 
if you have a game that is set like that um, and you have a price point attached to Games Workshop models um, that are as high as they are, the people who are chasing that, uh, they're going to be tempted to go down alternative routes to have the most powerful army, to have you know, or a competitively strong army. Now, I'm not taking away from the skill in using those armies, but if you are competitive at that level, you are going to try and make sure that you are sort of on the cutting edge. And I bought, sold armies with such rapidity back in the day when I was on the tournament circuit that uh, it was shocking. And looking back at the number of armies that I either painted or bought painted and then immediately sold after a couple events, it's shocking. Um, now, had I had opportunities to go through the 3D printed route back then, you, you better believe I would have done it. I, I was sculpting my own models to take advantage to create models that would be cheaper um, slash different. I wanted something that stood out on the tabletop. And when you have games like Age of Sigmar, uh, now I recently went to the... Uh, Dwellers Below event, Lord of War, uh, helped out, uh, being an ex-dweller, and I had a blast. Great community. Fantastic. Uh, The tables looked great. The the models on the tables were astonishing. The painting quality was of such a high caliber um, that I want you, when I say what I'm about to say, to remember that I am qualifying this. But Age of Sigmar, the way the game is written, when you Buy models for it. You're sort of buying models in groups of like 10, 20, 30 when you're building it. it there isn't a whole lot of variety um, within the unit choices themselves. Um, yes, you can mix and match weapons a little bit. You can change them. There's a little bit of that. But I find the game, the way it works, is fairly cons- prescriptive and constrictive. You end up with a lot of very beautiful armies that kind of look the same. Uh, And so you want something that really sticks out. Um, And because, again, if you listen to, and I'm a big fan of The Honest Wargamer, love love Rob and the guys, uh, big fan of the show, Uh, but the the constant conversation about which armies, which units are the best, and how, you know, people often just take those um, to, again, it's it's a meta chasing. Um, So I think that it's incredibly short-sighted, um, to be so critical and sort of ironic and, um, and might I say, controversially hypocritical of the 40K slash Age of Sigmar community, I think in this case more 40K, uh, to not want to include those models. Um, I think that 3D printing technology really is the future of wargaming. Um, and I, I would love to see Games Workshop come out with you know, the ability where you can buy the STL files of their models. Now, of course, that would open up a huge floodgate of, well, if one person buys it, why can't they just share it with everyone? And that would be problematic um, for them, I'm sure, um, them wanting to control their their IP, their property, their their sales. But I, I am not the technological wizard um, slash the smartest man in the world. But I, I think that the 40k community and gaming in general really just needs to start leaning into this because it's coming. There's nothing that, I mean, it's like Napster, but with the music industry, there's going to be a revolution with this. It's coming. How we, how we 
adapt to change and how we look at um, the way that our community interacts with this technology, no matter what the game system, I think that is huge, especially given the number of miniature agnostic games like Warlords of Erewhon, Genesis Project, even Gaslands that exist today. I mean, there's just countless games that allow you to play with what you want to play with. So in an environment where you can literally create what you want uh, whenever you want it, using 3D printing or, you know, whatever else, I think that bigger game companies need to acknowledge and consider how this technology is going to impact them and uh, take advantage of it because it is wonderful. And as soon as companies like FFG or GW or, you know, other large game companies start to sort of lean into this technology, I think it really will open the floodgates creatively for all of us. And I I embrace that change and I hope it's coming. Now, as I said at the beginning of the episode, um, I had the pleasure last night of podcasting with a group of gentlemen who I love listening to, um, the Longbox Crusade, all four of those guys, uh, Jason, Jared, Delvin, Pat. Um, I listened to a lot of their shows and some of you will no doubt recognize Jared and Delvin's names. Jared, of course, has been on when I talked about Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Never Say Never Again. Delvin, of course, was on as one of our guests for The Transformers. And so these guys do um, a variety of podcasts about comic books, about old-timey uh, television serials um, back in the, from the 1930s, uh, action movie reviews uh, and commentary, and just, you know, Tons of stuff that I'm a big fan of. And the fact that they invited me on to talk about, you know, circa 1936 Flash Gordon was just a ton of fun. So uh, look for that episode. I will share it through the Facebook page of when that goes live. Uh, I had a blast. And it just reminded me uh, of a few things. Now, I have been talking a long time about doing what I originally called way back when uh, story time with Old Man Morin, and I, it was going to be a podcast that um, looked at novels, looked at movies, uh, looked at comic books, and I never really fully got around to making that work. Um, I uh, it, this show is literally just me, um, and I bring in guests, and we talk about games, uh, and sometimes. Uh, when life gets busy as a primary school teacher or when you're packing up house or whatever else, um, there may not always be time to play games. Um, and so I'm going to resurrect this idea. Now, I'm not entirely 100% sure of the name yet. Um, I'm thinking of just calling it something simple like Cast Dice Presents Storytime. Uh, but I am going to get back to talking about things that I love uh, in addition to and sort of tangential uh, next to and relating to gaming. Now, does that mean that Cast Dice is going to stop? Hell no. Cast Dice will continue with the same frequency and the... Uh, the same vigor it always has. Uh, I'm talking about doing fun little side things um, where I get to really talk to people who aren't gamers all the time. Now, I do love talking to gamers, as you know, uh, but I do sometimes like to bring, you know, old friends on from other industries or from experiences in my life to talk about things like movies, comic books, television shows, um, books, novels, just things that inspire us as gamers. Um 
I mean, just looking at and watching a bunch of old Flash Gordon serials got me inspired to watch one of my favorite movies, again, the Flash Gordon movie, and I'm going to have to do an episode about that at some point. Um, But that, of course, tied in with um, Crooked Dice's posting recently that they're talking about doing um, a limited run Kickstarter of um, sort of fun science fiction models. And one of the models that they showed was one of Ming's palace guard from the 1980 Flash Gordon movie. Oh, yeah. Um, These are the people, of course, who also did the visitor models um, from V. I, 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 I love that you can get models for these things. Just going back to uh, that whole comment I made before of the sky being the limit with 3D printing. I mean, the fact that there are companies making models for these things is fantastic. And so I I want to do a podcast that talks about these uh, inspirational things that, you know, sort of drive our love of the hobby. I mean, games are great. Rules are great. But it's really the, the fluff and the narrative that, in my mind, really drives a lot of why I game. And uh, I think I want to share some of that love, um, the things that I love and the things that my guests love. So we're going to continue with that. Now, shows like the movie reviews that I've done recently or movie commentaries, uh, discussions, and sort of the Transformers, maybe some of the G.I. Joe chat that we've done of late will sort of fall under that umbrella. Again, it's it's still early days. I'm hoping to start that in the next month or so. Likewise, um, as soon as I am back in Melbourne and have moved house and have set up, uh, you will start seeing videos of games. Now, I, I'm not sure exactly what games and who's going to be playing, but um, as we sort of figure our way through, I am looking forward to, uh, I don't know, showing people the games that I'm always talking about. Again, it's it's sharing that passion, and I, I hope that you'll join me on this trip. I think uh, this has been, you know, it's not New Year's, but uh, for me it's been, you know, it's it's taking a break from the, the hustle and bustle of daily life. Uh, this trip's been really good for giving me the time away from, you know, everything that happens normally um, to reflect back on what I like about what's been going on with the show, um, reflect about you know, how how things are going and how I can improve, um, and to really think about sort of the future. Um, I'm not sure that many of you are aware, but um, Cast Dice literally came into being uh, on a trip like this two years ago. And so if you enjoy Cast Dice, I hope you'll be as excited as I am about uh, the future of where this show and where I am going with it. But I think that that is probably enough for today. That is, um, God, almost an hour of me talking by myself. I hope that you have uh, enjoyed me talking about these things. Um, I promise I will not make a habit of it. Uh, I find this sort of thing incredibly confronting. Um, I prefer to talk with other people. Now, I do want to say that there is a lot of great stuff coming up for the podcast in the next couple of weeks slash months. So I hope you tune in. And uh, guys, as always, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, when you are playing the games that we love, I hope you are having fun. This is Cast Dice saying good night. (laughs) 